Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. If I've not gotten a chance to meet you yet, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here today. Uh, on the feed, you heard Josh talk about a big giving day, November 19th, and so let me unpack what that looks like. Uh, over the last few years, God has used you in some incredible ways as you have given generously to God. We've tried to steward those resources well, and every year we try to do what's called a big given day. Here's the vision. Here's where we want it to go. Uh, first off, we're trying to raise $500,000. That's a lot. Now, that's over all of our campuses. There's lots of projects and ministries and outreach. Uh, first off, we're, we're aiming for this new ministry called Hope for Cora, and uh, there's 100 families in Ethiopia that are in need to expand their daycare ministry. Uh, they reach out and minister to some of the poorest families in the world, and so we'd love to partner with Hope for Cora and give towards that. Secondly, we have these things called community gatherings. We have one right now. It's in Hancock, New York. It's pretty much brand new, just a few weeks old. And what that looks like is, is we have rented out a movie theater. We've set it up to look a lot like a campus. There's not live preaching. There's no live worship. There is a live host, and we pipe in everything. But we're trying to reach Hancock, New York, because there's not a lot of gospel ministry churches there. So we'd love to do more of that. Number three, we're trying to multiply more ministry leaders. Over the last three years, we've had 10 interns come through Bridgewater Church, and many of them we've hired, and some, out, some we've sent out. And so we'd like to do more of that, where we, we are able to equip and reach and uh, pour into other ministry leaders. Number four, office renovations. We have a centralized office in Montrose, Pennsylvania, and Bridgewater Church is 200 years old. And the building looks like it's 200 years old. It, on the inside, it looks like it's 1,000 years old. So it needs a major facelift. Uh, also, we've added additional staff, and so we're trying to find more places to put people. So we're trying to create more office space in a building that really wasn't created or designed to be an office. So we'd like to renovate that. Lastly, our Tonkanic building needs renovations. Last year, you gave towards that. We talked about that. Because of your giving, because of your generosity, we were able to purchase that building without borrowing money from the bank. But there's a lot of work that, that goes into this building that we want to make it look like and feel like a building that is Bridgewater-ish, that feels inviting. So when families come in, kids come in, students come in, you guys come in, it feels like that. And so Bridgewater-Tonkanic is, is blowing up. They've gone from two services, two services to three services Two out of their three services are like jammed, packed. And so what I'm asking today is that you would simply think about it and pray about it. That's all. If you're married, talk to your spouse. That's usually important to do <laughs> when it comes to this. But today I'm just asking you, hey, would you, would you consider it? Would you simply pray about it? And that's all. We'll circle, circle back November 19th. But Today, we are wrapping up our Starting Point series, and uh, it's been a great series. If you've missed any of those, you can go online and listen to or re-listen to those series. So, well, in the winter, before his crucifixion, Jesus brought his apprentices up to Caesarea Philippi. Let me show you where that is on the map. 
here's the Sea of Galilee. And for some reason, he brought them about 30 miles north. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would he bring them all the way up there to have a conversation? It's a really peculiar area because it, was a, it had a strong focus on religion, but not on the one true God. Caesarea Philippi was a place filled with idol worship. It was filled with places where they had shrines and temples to other gods, not the one true God. In fact, Israel, before Israel uh, came into the land, this was occupied by the Canaanites. In the Old Testament, you read about the Canaanites, and God says, stay away from the Canaanites. Don't marry the Canaanites because they worship a god called Baal. They worshiped several other fertility gods, and so it was occupied by the Canaanites. Israel moved in. Well, later the Greeks moved in. They took over and they began to build shrines and temples to the god Pan. Later on, the Romans took it over. They also built more shrines, more temples to the god of Pan. In fact, when they took over, they said, hey, you can actually worship Caesar. That's why it gets its name, Caesarea Philippi. And so whatever you wanted, whatever you needed, there was a god or an idol for that. And let me show you what, where they put them. They had these shelves. You can go back to Caesarea Philippi now, and these shelves are still there where they'd have these idols or these gods, and whoever or whatever you wanted to worship, they had one there for you. Jesus brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, one of the darkest places on the earth, place filled with idolatry, and he brings them there. And today, uh, it's, it's gone now, but back then in the first century, they had this pool of water that was so incredibly deep that if you took all of the ropes in Caesarea Philippi and put them down into this pool of water, it wouldn't reach the bottom. And they believed it was so deep that this was the entrance to the underworld. This was the actual entrance, they believed, to Hades and hell. It was that dark of a place. And Jesus brings his disciples here. And he says, now who do people say that I am? Now either he's fishing for a compliment, which I don't think he is, or he's setting them up for something else. And one by one they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah. Others say you're some other prophet. And Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. But then he turns and he says, now, who do you say that I am? Peter eagerly raises his hand. Ooh, ooh, me, me, you're the Messiah. Ding, ding, ding. You're right. In, in the darkest place, in enemy territory, Jesus proclaims, maybe for the first time, that he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the Savior. That's incredible. Jesus makes a prediction here at Caesarea Philippi about the church. Listen to what Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to have the verses on screen behind me. I'm going to read verse 18. Here's Jesus' prediction. Now I say to you, that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
A lot of translations say, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Because it was known for that deep pool of water where that led to, or they believed that led to hell or Hades. And Jesus makes this incredible prediction. I'm going to build a church. I'm going to build a a gathering of Jesus' followers. I'm going to build an assembly of Jesus' followers called the church. And nothing Nothing is going to stop it. Not the powers of hell, not the gates of hell, not the gates of Hades. Nothing will stop it. Nothing will conquer it. Nothing will overcome it. I'm going to build a group of followers of Jesus. And he didn't predict a place. He's predicting a people. And this place was known as the gates of hell. And he says nothing, and I mean Nothing will stop it. After Jesus made this prediction, he'll be arrested and crucified. And I imagine people came up to him and and two of these disciples and said, hey, how about that Jesus gathering? Is that still happening? And they might have said, well, he died. I'm I'm not really sure. Well, maybe not. Probably not. I'm not really sure. Well, then Jesus, three days later, raised himself from the dead. And he interacted with hundreds of people. Over 500 people came out and they saw the resurrected Jesus. And it's there in front of hundreds of people, in front of hundreds of eyewitnesses that Jesus continues to elaborate on this gathering. So flip over to Matthew chapter 28. Here's what he says. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a pretty bold claim. I have all the authority in heaven and on earth. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to do something incredible. And I'm inviting you. I'm inviting all of my apprentices, all of the disciples, everybody who can hear this to be a part of this. And here's what he says. Next verse. Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, In light of even the prediction of the church, what I said at Caesarea Philippi, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go make more apprentices of of Jesus' followers. Go find more people and tell them about me. Tell them about the Christ. Tell them about the, the risen Savior. Help them live as Jesus lived and go over all over the nation baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he's invited you to be a part of that. He's invited all of us to go and make disciples. As apprentices of Jesus, he's called us to do that. So not only does Jesus want his disciples to go and make more disciples, he wants them, he wants you and I to help others take their next step. Like, help them get baptized. That might be your next step. Help them do that. But then listen to what Jesus says next. Verse 20, teach these new disciples to obey all. All the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even 
to the end of the age. (laughs) Jesus says to his disciples, go, go make other Jesus followers. Go make other apprentices. And when you do, get them baptized and then teach them everything I've taught you. And I'm going to be with you all the time. Not physically, but spiritually. Remember, this conversation started at Caesarea Philippi in one of the darkest places ever. In the midst of enemy territory, he is telling them, he's predicting something amazing. And then after that, he's saying, go do something. Go make disciples. I'm going to be with you. And eventually, the church began to grow. It began to grow. Hundreds and thousands of people committed their lives to follow Jesus. Thousands of people, not all the way around the world, not a hundred years later, but thousands of people in Jerusalem all decided, we're going to follow Jesus. We're going to live our life the way that he lived it. And the church began as a growing gathering of men and women who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And so that's, the, that's where we're starting today. Give me the next slide, please. The church. That's how it began. 10, 20, hundreds, thousands of people growing and gathering because they believed Jesus was the Son of God. It didn't start based on something that was taught. It all started on an event, the resurrection. And that that church began to grow and multiply. It grew into a little house church and then a bunch of house churches. And then some people came along and they were like, you know what, we're tired of this Jesus thing. We're sick of it. And they decided we're going to persecute people who follow Jesus. Not only are we going to persecute them, we're going to throw them in jail, we're going to beat them up, we're going to rough them up. In fact, we're going to kill them. And persecution broke out. And I imagine that did something to the church. I don't know if it stopped it or if it slowed it down, but there's a guy in the book of Acts that he made it his life mission to just snuff out that church. Take a look at Acts chapter 9. I'm going to introduce you to a guy. We know him as the apostle Paul. Before his name became Paul, his name was Saul. And it was his mission to persecute, destroy, hurt, kill Christians. Acts chapter 9, the church has been growing. He's trying to snuff it out. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. Anyone who was following the way of Jesus, he wanted to arrest them. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. God is watching this guy named Saul try to destroy the church, killing Christians, arresting them, trying to just snuff it out. God saw this man and could have said, you know what, Saul? See ya. 
wouldn't want to be a, I'm going to get rid of this guy, Saul. But he doesn't do that at all. He takes this guy, Saul, and he says, you know what? I'm going to use him. I'm going to do something that nobody would ever think would happen. I'm going to radically transform this guy's life. He doesn't look like Jesus followers. He doesn't think like these Jesus followers. He's trying to kill them. But I have a plan for him. I want to use him to do something great. Take a look at what happens. Verse 3. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus just completely interrupts his life, finds him there on this road, blinds him. And I just want to tell you, that's, that's incredible, all right? But all the amazing things that we see in the book of Acts, most of those are descriptive, not prescriptive, right? They're describing something that happened, not necessarily saying this is what will happen in your life. So don't leave here expecting like a, bl a bright light to blind you today and to hear an audible voice of Jesus, all right? If that happens, send me a text. I'd like to hear about it. But, th but there's amazing miracles happening in, in the book of Acts and, and God is radically changing this man's life. Traveling with a group of other guys, some friends, and they hear this and their jaws just drop, right? They hear the voice too. Verse 7, it says, The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. It's amazing. But then something else is going to change in the life of Saul. He's going to be led somewhere else. And there's some people that know about Saul. They've heard about him. His reputation has gone all over the area. And Christ followers, they're terrified of this man. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying right now. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know who you're talking about. Saul's the guy trying to kill people like me. Saul is the guy that's trying to destroy the church, Jesus. I mean, if I go anywhere near him, he's going to have me arrested, thrown. He's going to beat me. He might kill me. What are you talking about? Jesus continues. Verse 13. Actually, we'll read verse 12. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Verse 13. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest 
everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument. I'm going to use this man as an instrument of redemption. I'm going to take him. I know he's been hurting people. I know he's been killing people. He's been persecuting people. He's been actively trying to destroy the church. He is my chosen instrument. I have designed him, created him, purposed in him for something incredible. He's my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. See, the disciples were taking the message. They were taking it, Jerusalem, Judea, but they had only taken it so far. God says, I'm going to use this man, Saul, and because of his message, the gospel is going to go all over the world. Because of this man, I'm going to use this man to write much of the New Testament. He is my instrument. I created him. I've purposed him. I've given him purpose. I'm going to renew that purpose in his life. And that's true for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, God looks at you and he sees you with purpose. He's created you with purpose. He's given you new purpose. And in fact, he uses all things to work in your life, your work, your job, your boss, your classmates, your teachers, all of life's experiences. He uses those. The storms that you walk through, the valleys you go through, all of that, God uses every single one of those. The experiences, the tensions, the ups and the downs. God's designed you on purpose for a purpose. And in the midst of all of this, he, Jesus has given this commission to the church, right? Starting with Caesarea Philippi, starting in enemy territory, starting in one of the darkest places ever. Uh, we are going to build a church. I'm going to build a gathering of people. And the gates of hell are not going to stop it. Go make disciples. Be a light in this place. Go be salt. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's created you with that same purpose, to go and make disciples. Let's go back to Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16. Remember what it says? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that, I, that the Son of Man is? And then he goes on, he says, upon this rock, I am going to build my church. And all the powers of hell, the gates of hell, will not conquer it. Remember, this was where the Greek god Pan was. According to pagan mythology, he was born in a nearby cave, and Caesar Augustus had given them... Hey, the, the occupation and the, and the role to build a God after Caesar, worship Caesar. Caesar was lifted up as a God to be worshiped. The background of all of this tells us this is an incredibly dark place. 
but Jesus is commissioning his disciples. Go be light. Go be salt. Go make a difference in this dark world. Jesus is saying that my church, my Jesus gatherings will not be stopped by the entrance of hell. Nothing is going to stop it. Not even the gates of hell. Now, now gates, they would have been defensive, right? Gates exist to keep people out. But Jesus is not talking about defense. He's talking about offense. Let God worry about the defense. He is telling us, go on the offense. We're not to shut the gates. We're to storm the gates. Go make disciples. Go be light in the darkest places. And I think that one of the reasons we've seen so many people come to know Christ is because this is a spiritually dark place. There's a lot of people in Broome County and Susquehanna County who are far from God. I mean, some of them haven't even heard of Jesus. And the others that have, it's sort of a cuss word, right? Or they associate with Christmas and Easter, but, but that's it. And when they come here, or they have conversations with you, it's like something brand new they've never heard. Or maybe they haven't heard it in years. And all of a sudden, God uses people like you to explain the gospel, and he opens up their eyes, he softens their heart, and he pulls them out of the darkness. You and I, we're called to be on offense, to go into the darkness and be a light. God has designed you to be a light in a dark place, and he has called you to be on offense, not defense. And then it happened. Just as Jesus predicted, the church Jesus gathering, it grew and began to spread all over the globe, and it continues to grow. But at some point along the way, you and I, we're going to have to wrestle with two things. One, Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to hundreds of people. Over 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus. That's something we have to wrestle with. But secondly, he made a prediction about the church, and it came true. It happened. We'll have to wrestle with that, and I'll tell you, those are big things that we have to figure out. And so my question for you today is, what's the next step in my journey? What's the next step in my story? What's the next step in your story? What's the next step in your spiritual journey? What if, what if today you could make a decision that would radically change your life, but not only change your life, it would change the lives of those around you? It starts with following Jesus. So here's some ways we should think through this. Number one, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this is the truth? And if so, then what? I'll tell you, making that decision, answering that question, yes, I really believe it, that would change your life forever. I'm not promising all your problems will go away. I'm not promising more money. But it really will change your life. 
Number two, have you ever asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life? That may be your next step in your story. Or maybe you've already decided to follow Jesus, but you've never been baptized. That might be your next step. Or getting in a small group, men's group, a women's group, get in a group with other believers who can help you along the way. Or maybe it's serving or giving. Or maybe there's, there's a habit in your life and you've just got to cut it off and put it away and replace it with something else. What's your next step? Jesus is the Messiah and, and he started this brand new thing called the church and you and I, we are called to go and be a light. In a moment, we're going to end our time by celebrating communion together. And so if you got one of these cups, go ahead and find it. If not, we'll have some gentlemen in the back that can hand a few of these out. But I want to be really clear about what communion is and what it is not. Communion is for people who have already proclaimed Jesus as their leader of their life and forgiver of their sins. And so if that's not a decision you've made, feel free just to sit back, watch, listen, think. Taking communion will not add to your salvation. It, it doesn't get you eternal life. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, the church had totally messed up this thing called communion. <laughs> Rich people were showing up to communion with all sorts of food and wine and they were eating before anybody else. They were getting drunk and poor people were walking in. They had no food and they saw all these other people had already eaten. They were already drunk and, and Paul says, what are you guys doing? That's not the point of communion. Communion is about reflecting back on what Jesus did on the cross. And as he's giving this church instructions, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And so taking communion is, is a big deal. And I want to give you just a moment to simply think, reflect, and examine yourself. Every time we take communion, we should take a moment to examine ourselves, our attitudes, our motives, things we've done towards God or others, because it's a big deal. And I want to let you know that each of these elements symbolizes something. This bread symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross for us, and the juice symbolizes the blood that was shed for your sins and mine. 
Later in 1 Corinthians verse 23, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus died on the cross, he gave his life for our sins. Like I said earlier, his body was beaten, it was broken, and then he shed his blood for all of our sins. And the Bible says that blood washes away our sins. It makes us white as snow. In verse 25, Paul says this, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God in heaven, we are amazed by your grace. We're thankful for your word and that you created this thing called the church where we can gather together with other followers. We're also thankful that you are with us always. You've purposed us. You've designed us. You've sent us out into the darkness to be light. God, would you give us courage and boldness as we go into our workspace, our schools, our neighborhoods, our families, and as we live our lives as the light. God, help us not only to be courageous and bold, but help us to build our lives on your truth. And would you use us this week be just that, salt and light. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.